Hi, and welcome to all you wild history buffs, Indian and Oklahoma Territory enthusiasts, and new folk listening in. This is Joe Cummings. I am so glad you're taking the time to listen to Tall Tales Uncovered. Please share this podcast and do a rating review on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're using to help spread our great true history tales. We were the Wild West, and we need to take the time to celebrate it to keep our history alive. It's such a beautiful, cold, snowy day. It's so nice for all of us to gather together in this family room in front of the fire, big fireplace. That warmth feels so good. Mary, thanks for handing out the coffee, tea, and water. Everybody, there's cookies on the table over there. Well, all the chairs are about full. Tim, uh, you can come over here by me if you want. It's hard to believe it's been a year since my book, Oklahoma Tall Tales, Uncovered, published by History Press, was released. I really enjoyed all my book signings and meeting everyone. The book has been very well received. It sold out on Amazon on its first day. It is available at your local bookstore and Amazon, which gave it a five-star rating, their highest rating. It is endorsed by the United States Marshals Museum in Fort Smith, Arkansas. It makes a great gift anytime. Thanks for all of you for your support. I owe this tall tale to my sister, B. She found the story about the Kickaboo Kid who goes to Washington and thought it might be a great tall tale, and indeed it is. So thank you, B. Let us journey back to 1893. We find the Kickaboo Kid is at 10 Mile Flats, Oklahoma Territory, on June 18, 1893, with Bill Dalton, Bill Anderson, Arthur Gage, and a man from Fort Gibson he didn't know, who all were heavily armed. It was a time of outlaws, a great land run opening up the Cherokee outlet had just occurred on September 16, 1893. Dalton had planned to rob the Santa Fe northbound train. He gave the kid bullet orders, which meant if he didn't follow them exactly, Dalton would kill him. Dalton told him to board the train at Norman on June 30th. When the train reached Black Bear Creek, he was to cover the conductor with his gun and get him to stop the train at the edge of the bridge where they'd be waiting to rob the express car. The kid had a sword, revolver, and a Winchester. He was under bullet orders to bring along two sticks of dynamite and 25 feet of fuse. He boarded the train at Norman and Black Bear Bridge. Kickaboo Kid pointed his Winchester at Conductor Glazer, commanding him to put up his hands and give the signals to stop the train. The first signal didn't work, so the kid told Glazer if he didn't stop the train, he'd kill him. When the train stopped, the conductor was ordered to get off the train and go forward to the engine as the outlaw followed. As Glazier was told to get up into the engine, he grabbed the kid's Winchester with one hand and hit him hard in the face with the other hand. The kid fired the Winchester with the bullet barely missing the conductor. The conductor leveled the Winchester at the Kickaboo Kid as the kid reached for his revolver. The conductor hit the robber with the Winchester butt and dropped him to his knees. He told the kid to put up his hands or he would kill him. G.J. Hartman, the division superintendent, came from the train, and the kid was disarmed and placed in the express car. The Dalton gang did not show up and left the Kickaboo Kid defenseless. The Kickaboo Kid was taken to Norman for judgment, according to the Daily Oklahoma State Capitol paper of Guthrie, July 13, 1893. Everyone knew that Bill Dalton rolled with the Doolin's Wild Bunch, not with his outlaw brothers. Neither outlaw group was part of this train robbery. 
The kid said that his outlaw gang didn't show up because he did the robbery on the wrong day, the 29th, not the 30th. But the court realized the kid's outlaw gang was imaginary to everyone but the kid. The reality was what the conductor saw. A 16-year-old boy with a dirty old coat, overalls, and heavy boots with a small black hat. As a Kickaboo kid, he wore a big white hat. The court discovered Manuel Herrick was the real name of the Kickaboo kid. He was taken by Sheriff George Smith to Oaklawn Retreat, Jacksonville, Illinois, a sanitarium for the mentally ill. The territory of Oklahoma agreed with them to care for its mentally ill. Manuel stayed at the retreat in Jacksonville, Illinois, for less than two years. Also, during territorial days, when one is released from a sanitarium, all former rights are restored to that person, including competency. Manuel returned to live with his parents, John and Belinda Herrick, on their farm near Perry, Oklahoma Territory. Belinda Kale married John Herrick on June 29, 1873, in Tuscarawas County, Ohio. Manuel was born in Ohio, then the family moved to Greenwood County, Texas, Kansas, near the Cherokee Outlet. John participated in the Cherokee Outlet run on September 16, 1893. He staked one claim, but found out John J. Blair was already residing there. So he purchased the prior claim of Mr. Cutler. He started to improve the place by building a house. He was fortunate that near the house was a spring of cold water so that it had an excellent supply of water. He set out trees and shrubbery and moved his family, law, hogs, and cattle to the farm. He and Manuel built a nice, it was really pretty nice, two-story house of rock, firmly cemented together with a brick fireplace for both levels with windows. The north side was blank wall to keep the cold out. The family was very poor as the land had many rocks on it. Only a small part of the land was planted for crops, with the rest used as grazing for cattle. Belinda was very religious and often listened to an itinerant preacher tell about the birth of Jesus in Matthew 1.23. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So, on September 20th, 1876, to Belinda, her son was born, and she called him Emmanuel. It was often wondered she felt her son was the return of Christ. Manuel was not allowed to cut his hair, and as a young man, never shaved. He had no brothers or sisters. Belinda felt unworthy to ride by her son on the spring seat in the front of the wagon as they went to town. So she and John sat on a quilt in the back. She and her husband always followed a few steps behind Manuel as they walked down the street. They all ate together in the town store. They bought some crackers, cheese, and sardines. They would sit on the feed sacks in the back of the store to eat. Manuel, like his mother, was very religious and always read his Bible. However, he was not welcome in the churches because he would interrupt the minister during his sermon and then loudly argue with him. He did not smoke, drink, or go to saloons. He loved books and learned to write. He loved to go hunting with his wolfhounds. Manuel would walk or ride his horse to town. He would be barefoot, wearing overalls and an old felt hat. The children made fun of him and called him Backwoods Man. Backwoods Man. 
He went to cafes and offered to sweep the floors or wash dishes for something to eat. He would go to grocery stores and eat crackers, cookies, and apples right out of the barrels. He was the town freeloader. His mother died at age 70 during the winter of 1911 and was buried 50 yards southwest of their home. John died at age 85 in Leavenworth, Kansas on December 12, 1918. The farm was turned over to Manuel and he mortgaged the place to Clara Kuhlman for $600. Manuel began to run for a variety of public offices in Noble County. Following his father's death, he campaigned for the U.S. House seat, but received only 56 votes. Oklahoma became a state in 1907 and had five representatives allotted in the U.S. House of Representatives. After the 1910 federal census, Oklahoma was allotted eight representatives. Enid, this author's home, is in Garfield County and in the 8th Congressional District, composed of Cimarron, Texas, Beaver, Harper, Woodward, Woods, Major Alfalfa, Grant, Garfield, K., and Noble Counties. Well, Manuel kept running for public office and was always unsuccessful. In 1920, he filed for the U.S. House of Representatives in the 8th Congressional District on the Republican ticket. No one took him seriously. No one could defeat Congressman Dick T. Morgan, who was highly regarded and served since 1909. No one else filed, as it was simply a waste of money. The current Congressman, Dick T. Morgan, graduated from high school in two years with honors. He earned a B.S. and an M.S. at S.B. Union Christian College in Marome, Indiana, while holding the chair in mathematics and serving as the superintendent of the high school in Hagerstown, Indiana, for two years. He was valedictorian of his law class of Central Law School in Indianapolis. He was in partnership with the law firm with N.G. Buff and publisher of the Terra Haute Courier, a paper of wide circulation. He was also elected to the General Assembly of Indiana. He was just 26. He was the authority on Oklahoma Territory land laws. His manual on land laws sold over 20,000 copies and was used by the clerks in the U.S. Department of Interior. In Congress, he secured $1 million worth of cash benefits for his district and $690,000 for the erection of federal buildings in his district. He was a member of the powerful Judiciary Committee. He was a trustee of Phillips University in Enid, Oklahoma. Morgan never missed a roll call on any vote taken in Congress. At that time, he was the only congressman to attain a perfect vote. His election was definitely absolute. The Kickaboo Kid did not need to saddle up at all. Dick T. Morgan left Washington in great spirits as he went on vacation to visit some of his wife's relatives in Covington, Indiana, a month before the primary election. On the train, he became violently ill. He was taken to a hospital in Danville, Illinois, and then suddenly he died. He died after the time limit for any candidate to file for his congressional seat. By default, you guessed it, George, you said it, by default, the nomination would go to the only other Republican already filed, Manuel Herrick. The impossible 
had begun. Zach A. Harris was a Democrat opposing Herrick. He was a pastor of the Christian Church in Blackwell, farmed and president of the Blackwell Building and Investment Company on the school board, city council, and president of the board of trustees of the Phillips University in Enid. The general thought was Republicans would vote for Harris, switch over to the Democrats, rather than vote for Herrick. However, even though Oklahoma had been Democratic, the Republicans had a voting landslide in 1920, capturing five of the eight districts. Herrick received 31,337 votes. Zach Harris had 23,218. Holy moly, the Kickaboo Kid was headed to Washington. Manuel appeared to be the first choice of almost none of the voters of his district. He was an embarrassment to many Oklahomans. Many thought that Congress would say Manuel was unqualified to be in Congress. So many Republicans voted a straight Republican ticket, which is what gave Manuel the victory. Manuel did set a congressional record by spending only $300 for his whole campaign. Manuel busied himself with appointing postmasters for the district. The farm he left in the hands of a tenant who farmed the place in Manuel's absence. His few head of cattle were either sold or left there. He had a new shirt, a black suit, and shoes shined to a mere finish. He gave a farewell address to the Perry Chamber of Commerce with the promise, I am going to try to be of the class that keeps their mouth shut and accomplish things for the good of their constituents. The new congressman chose Major Harry Benson Gilstrip from Chandler to be his secretary. He owned the Channel News Publicist and was the postmaster. He earned the rank of major during World War I. He was an excellent choice. He was well-educated, had many years in public life, was a writer, and completely loyal to Herrick. Manuel sent hundreds of pamphlets to his constituents, that dealt with agriculture and work to obtain pensions for veterans and benefits for the farmers. He followed the Republican line. He was for high tariffs to keep foreign goods out and against the League of Nations, plus more money for the Air Force. He served on the committees including alcoholic, liquor traffic, the Industrial Arts and Expositions, and Arid Lands Committee. The article in the Wichita Beacon of November 6, 1920, surfaced that Manuel spent 15 hours in the Wichita City Jail while he was in the heat of his campaign. He had disturbed the peace at a local employment office for having to turn down thousands of dollars. Herrick said that he was jailed by Oklahoma big businessmen who were trying to harass him and drive him out of the running. The article read that Herrick thrives on surprising people. It was like a prophecy of a coming event. Manuel introduced H.R. 8208 bill in the U.S. House of Representatives to prohibit beauty contests. They are detrimental to the morals of the young women who are lured away from their homes and deceived by unscrupulous people. Twenty hours after his bill achieved publicity, it developed that he had been running a beauty contest of his own. He started the Manuel Herrick Beauty Contest. He sent letters to 47 Washington, D.C. women who had been entrants in a previous contest. 
Eight women replied they would confer with the congressman. He sent a letter explaining the victor would win the hand in marriage of a wealthy man. The girl who is a winner in this contest will have the love of a man whose love will be so great he would ransom your soul out of hell with the price of his own. This man holds one of the highest offices in the land, will in less than eight years hold the highest. This contest must be carried out in secret. No young lady should hesitate because she thinks she's too young to be a wife. Well, the marriage can be deferred until she is of sufficient age. An ambassador will arrange a meeting. Newspapers all over wrote scathing accounts of the event and questions why Oklahoma had ever chosen such a man. Two of the letters were turned over to the Postal Service. The general public was totally outraged, and Congress wanted an explanation. Herrick said the letters were a decoy to obtain conclusive evidence of luring away girls to beauty pageants, which he was holding for the Judiciary Committee. The Great Falls Tribune of Montana of September 5, 1921, article read that Herrick was the first and only member of either house to start a beauty contest in the nation's capital with himself as the prize. On August 30th, the husband of one girl and the father of another made an attack in force on his office. Herrick only saved himself from a big beating by help from a colleague. Two women detectives of the Washington Police Force visited his office impersonating the girls. Mrs. Elizabeth Nabel filed a 50,000 breach of promise suit on behalf of her daughter, Anna Elizabeth. Mrs. Shorey asked the Washington Police to keep Congressman Herrick away from her daughter, Elizabeth Shorey. The Nabel suit never materialized. Herrick's bill, of course, went nowhere. Representative Manuel Herrick was the aerial daredevil of Congress. He promoted more money for the United States Air Force. He bought a two-passenger plane from the government. He engaged E.C. Pearson, a former Army aviator, to fly the plane. Herrick wanted to use the plane for the primary of 1922. On the flight from Memphis to Perry, Oklahoma, the plane went down near Hamilton, Arkansas, with engine trouble. It was fixed, but on takeoff, it crashed into a tree and could not be used for the campaign. Fortunately, no one was hurt in either accident. Following his defeat for renomination in 1922, Herrick moved to California, Maryland, 80 miles from Washington. He lost his reelection campaign every two years, with 1930 being his last attempt. He received only 168 votes. The McAllister News Capital of August 7, 1930, reported that Manuel Herrick was arrested by prohibition agents for operating a still and questioned by the Department of Justice agents for representing himself as a Secret Service agent. His bail was set at 2,500, the two men with him at 1,500. A third man got away. Herrick was operating the 500-gallon still at the time of his arrest. He was living alone in a one-room shack near the still. He was working as a boiler tender and a utility man at a nearby mill. He was taken to the jail in Baltimore upon his being arrested. Herrick said he was tending the still for a bootlegger 
and gathering evidence as an undercover agent for the Prohibition Bureau. The Bureau said, no, he wasn't. He was convicted and sentenced to six months in jail. Manuel returned to his family homestead. Like many Yokies in 1933, he moved to California, to Quincy, California. He ran for Congress in Quincy, but received only 85 votes, which ended his last election. By 1952, he lived as a virtual hermit in the mountains, panning for gold. He planted a garden and had a pension of $85 a month, as he was almost blind. George Welch was a 72 and a pensioner. He came to Quincy to live with Herrick as Herrick had advertised. A snowstorm had occurred, which is one of the worst in modern history. Quincy received 70.75 inches of snow, 70.75 inches of snow. On January 11th, Rodney Allen took Welch and Herrick to Taylor Creek where they unloaded their belongings. The snow was almost knee-deep, but they felt they could walk the three miles to the Herrick's cabin. No more thought was given to them as everyone assumed they were safe at the cabin. After several weeks, concern grew for them, as mail for both of them was still unclaimed. Herrick's cabin was searched, which had enough food for months but no sign of habitation. Sheriff Mel Schooler formed a search party. On February 9th, they came upon the body of Welch, sitting against a tree, but only his head was visible above the snow. On February 29th, George Penniman discovered the body of Herrick. He was at the foot of a large pine tree. He had sat on the blanket and fell to the left at death. His large felt hat covered his face. He was wearing his overalls and coat and his stick nearby. The search party surmised that Manuel went toward his cabin but turned back to help his new friend lagging behind. He sat down to rest but never got up. Manuel's property was sold in open court for $400 to Leroy Kerr. Welch was cremated and the remains were sent to his daughter in Chicago. There are two simple granite markers at the foot of a large pine tree in the pauper section of the Quincy Cemetery in memory of George Welch and Manuel Herrick. Belinda thought her son Emmanuel, or Manuel, was Jesus, which he was not. But he died giving his life to help another. One cannot ask for more. Well, B, thank you for bringing in this tall tale. It certainly is. Like all of you, don't forget to rate this podcast on the flat platform you're using. Please share this tall tale to keep our history alive. Thank you for coming and letting me bend your ear. Feel free to get a drink and a cookie for the road. I so appreciate everyone listening in today. What, well, Paul? Yeah, thank you, Paul. Uh, don't remember about my book, Oklahoma Tall Tales Uncovered. It's available everywhere in bookstores or on Amazon. Amazon gave it a five-star rating, the highest. 
is endorsed by the U.S. Marshals Museum in Fort Smith, Arkansas. So get your copy today. I hope you enjoy it. This is Joe Cummings. See you next time on Tall Tales Uncovered.